We are looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. There's so much truth in this, in this chapter focused in and around the resurrection of Jesus. And we are looking at five key realities regarding the hope of the gospel uh, that we have. We've looked at reality number one the, for the past two weeks that the hope of the gospel is centered on Christ. Christ is who gives us hope. When we think of the gospel, the gospel, of course, means good news. The message of the gospel is is good news, but we have to remember it's not simply the type of good news that, that we may receive from the doctor with a clean bill of health. It's not simply the type of good news that we may receive from our job or from a family member. No, the gospel, the good news of the gospel, it's, uh, for lack of a better term, it is an otherworldly good news. It's a good news that, that comes from outside of this sphere of living that we know of. The, the, the good news of the gospel Uh, This is what it does. It takes all the worst parts of life, all the worst parts of self, all the worst parts of this universe, all the deepest, darkest, most unimaginable wretchedness, and it turns it on its head. That's the good news. See, the gospel is good news because it creates beauty out of chaos. It produces hope in the face of despair. Because of the gospel, we have a happily ever after story. It's not a a happily ever after story that ends on this earth. No, it's much greater than that. It's a happily ever ending story that goes into eternity. And at the center of this good news is Jesus. Take out Jesus, diminish Jesus, and there's no good news. Now because the gospel is otherworldly, because it seems too good to be true, our hearts and minds are prone to doubt it. Would you agree? at least to doubt its implications in our everyday life. See, our own, our, our own inner voice causes us to wonder if Jesus is really sufficient in our lives. And on top of that, we have countless other external voices that are calling us to place our trust in other things. So we have an internal battle that we are dealing with And on top of that, we have an external battle that we are dealing with. So I I say all of that to say this. The gospel is under attack. It's under attack everywhere we turn, every channel we flip, and it's even under attack in our inward parts. 
And this is what we see happening in 1 Corinthians 15. The crucial message of the gospel is not simply that Jesus died for our sins, but that his payment was acceptable to God as evidenced in his bodily resurrection. So without the empty tomb, what's the reality? Paul's going to say this in our text. Without the empty tomb, we are yet in our sins. Now there were certain in the Corinthian church uh, that were distorting the message of the gospel. And we have to get this. They were distorting the message of the gospel, not by outrightly denying the um, Christ's resurrection, but by denying the bodily resurrection of the saints. And Paul makes it clear in this chapter that this message is a distortion and a corruption of the gospel message. And if, if the Corinthians were going to take this distortion to its logical conclusion, it would mean that there was, abs- there was really no gospel at all. So today I want your senses, I want my senses to be heightened to the necessity that we must be on guard in our lives and that we must be on guard as a church to the reality that the gospel is under attack. And the gospel can be under attack, not simply from outside, but from inside with our own thoughts and perceptions and feelings. These attacks can come in any number of ways. And we're going to look at how this is happening in Corinth, and we are going to seek to apply this to our lives in a number of ways for ourselves and our church. And we're going to see once again the main truth that has tied our study together, that we must cling to what truly matters. And what truly matters, chapter 15 shows us, is that the gospel is a hope-filled message that should be producing a hope-filled people, but here's The danger, this hope-filled message is under attack, so we have to be on guard as individuals and as a church. Let's pray, and we're going to look at the second reality to the hope of the gospel, and that is that the hope of the gospel is indeed under attack. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to study your word together, Lord, we've already been worshiping you, and this is kind of the climactic moment of our worshiping together as a family. It is the study of your word. And Father, I pray that you would minister grace to our hearts. Lord, as the word of the gospel goes out, Would your spirit, would your presence be actively at work in our hearts? Father, I pray for those who, Lord, the gospel is under attack in the hearts of some. 
because they have never received that gospel. It's been, for whatever reason, something that's been rejected or even something that has been pretended to have been accepted. But Lord, they know that it's never truly become a part of their life. And Lord, there's others of us that today are struggling to forsake the gospel, to look to other things in replacement for the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would minister to show that a Jesus and Jesus alone is the only hope. So Lord, regardless of where we are, we are in need to cling to the message of the gospel. As Paul said in verse 1, it's the same message that we heard that was proclaimed to us. It does not change. So Lord, would we find our hope in this timeless good news about Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel is under attack. So if the gospel is under attack, the main truth this morning that I want to talk to you about is that we must therefore guard our hearts in the truth. We can't be lazy regarding this. The enemy is not lazy. It says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And 1 Peter was written to believers. So Satan is looking to devour those who are followers of Jesus. And we see that in this particular context of chapter 15, Satan is seeking to devour the Corinthian church. Man, we've looked at so many ways. But the elemental way here that we see is Satan is seeking to diminish the truth of the gospel in these Corinthians' lives. And if he can do that, he will indeed destroy this church. He's seeking to diminish the gospel here in chapter 15 in regards to the resurrection of the saints. Satan may be seeking to diminish the work of the gospel in a different way in your life. But yet the truth that we are going to look at today, regardless of, how, of the, that, that internal battle or that external battle, regardless of that, the truth is the same. We have to be on guard for the truth. Now look at verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the first thing we are dealing with that we see in this passage with the gospel being under attack is that there's a discrepancy of message going on here. They've heard one thing, but now there's individuals in the church that are believing another thing. There's a discrepancy. There's a tension. What, what are they going to do with this tension? The beginning of verse 12 talks about the pure proclaimed gospel. If Christ is proclaimed 
as raised from the dead. That's the truth. That's what in verse 11 Paul says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What did they believe? They believed that Christ was raised from the dead. They believed even more specifically, we looked at last week, verses 3 to 5, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared. That is what they were to hold firmly to. The resurrection of Christ is a core tenet of the gospel, so they have the proclaimed gospel on one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there is a skewed gospel. You know, something extra has been added into the, the ingredients that ought not to be there. The end of verse 12, it says, how, if, if part A is true, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now this is a seemingly, and this is where the gospel being under attack can be very tricky and sly. This is a seemingly slight deviation. There is no resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say anything here about Christ. It talks about believers. And we'll see that more as we continue to go along. This would also be not only just a slight deviation, it's kind of, as we're going to talk about, it's going through the back door. This was a very culturally accepted way to believe. Uh, This will not be on the screen, but listen as I read this to you, this this, uh, statement, this quotation. Corinthian skepticism concerning the place of the body in the afterlife is perfectly understandable in a Greco-Roman setting, in other words, in a first century setting when this was written. It was perfectly understandable in a Greco-Roman setting since Gentile contemporaries had no notion of bodily resurrection. Uh, He quotes another individual and says, as as N.T. Wright puts it, quote, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent. Outside Judaism, nobody believed in resurrection. In the Roman world, everybody knew dead people didn't and couldn't come back to bodily life. So it would have been very easy for the Corinthian church to take on this understanding, not necessarily that Christ wasn't raised from the dead, but that saints as a whole would not be raised from the dead. It would be really easy to justify, well, Christ was the God-man. He's different 
But no, we don't, we're not going to be raised to life. For an example of how the resurrection was understood in the first century, we can turn to Acts chapter 17. Now, if you are in Acts chapter 17, you will notice that in verse 16 is when Paul goes to Athens. And of course, Athens was a city where philosophy was very important. And Paul looks around and he sees and he's troubled by all of the, 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 the false idols. And I want us to jump just for sake of time um, you remember in verse 23, he sees that there is an altar that was to an unknown God. And, 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 and Paul uses that as a springboard to the gospel. That, that the, the, the Athenians and, and Roman, Greek Roman culture uh, was uh, so polytheistic, or the worship of many gods, uh, a god for everything, that they even had a statue that said to the unknown God. So basically, if we happen to leave out any other gods that are worshipped, then this statue stands for that one. And Paul uses that to say, I'm going to tell you about an unknown God, the one true God. Now, he has a captive audience because being big into philosophy, they wanted to hear this new teaching that this stranger was bringing. As Paul is talking, he gets more specific in verse 29, and he says this, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then get verse 31, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance, here it is, to all by raising him from the dead. So he had a captive audience up until that point. Then verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There you have those who are, who are steeped into the culture of the day. That is ridiculous, a resurrection. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So you can see that the resurrection of the dead was not a popular topic. And these believers, apparently, who, who, were, who had accepted the gospel message, were, were ready to accept Christ's resurrection, which was even more than many in Acts 17 were willing to do. But doubts started to come in about the resurrection of God's people. So this was a skewed gospel. A seemingly slight variation. I want to also point out to you that this should pose a great warning to us. 
Because to doubt the resurrection for the Corinthian church, it was an appealing yet a destructive tactic by the enemy. And while we as followers of Jesus, we may not doubt either the resurrection of Christ or our future resurrection, there are a lot of ways we can begin, without even realizing it, to start diminishing the gospel in our lives. To start replacing it with the truth of self or a truth of culture. And what begins to happen without even knowing it is we begin to follow a distorted gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, Paul says this about a different scenario in a different church, but universally true nonetheless. He says to the Galatian Christians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But remember we talked about the message that Paul says in verse 1, he proclaimed, he preached. It's of first importance, verse 3. And then he goes on and says what it is. That's what we're to hold to. Hold fast. This is how much confidence we can have in the gospel. The middle of, of Galatians here says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So you see, folks, what is going on here in 1 Corinthians is that denying a bodily resurrection of the saints was indeed a backdoor tactic to devalue Christ. And by devaluing Christ, what would happen is that the enemy's plan, Satan's goal was to shake the Corinthians from their true hope in Christ and Christ alone. He wasn't going to do that by outrightly having Christ's resurrection be diminished or denied. But as we will see, Paul is saying, if you start listening to this backdoor tactic, to its logical conclusion, you are going to deny Christ himself. Satan is not going to have us just outrightly compromise truth to fall into outright sin in the immediate. No, it is to chip away piece by piece through the back door. That's true as individuals and that is true as a church. So many times... We 
are focusing on one way and we have tunnel vision on one thing and we don't realize what's happening outside of that. In basketball, what happens when you don't keep, well, maybe you're not into basketball, but uh, one of the things, whether it's kind of helping out my kids, doing a little practicing, it is when you are on defense or on offense, you're constantly aware of where the ball is. So you want to have your eyes on defense, you want to have it, you want to have the eye on who has the ball and also where your person is that you're guarding. If you're on offense, you want to have the eye on where the, where the ball is. You want to have your eye on, on the goal. You want to be aware of what's around you. What can easily happen is that you get so focused on, let's say you're on defense, on the guy that you're defending, that you don't even know where the ball is. You're just looking at him. And you're totally unaware of everything else that is going on around you. Sometimes, and, and I won't say if this happened personally to me or not, but you can be so busy running down the court that someone actually passes you the ball and it just hits your head and bounces out of bounds. Man, we can live like that in our Christian life. We can get so caught up on one thing, we can get so caught up on, on this, this, this one thing, and maybe it's even a trial in your life. And we're so focused saying, God, if you're at work in my life, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do that. And you totally lose focus of the broader picture of who God is, what he's trying to do. We can get so caught up in our own thoughts and perceptions and feelings That we lose sight that the enemy can even take those very things and can start to weave deception in our minds. Produce bitterness to come into our hearts and cause Christ to be diminished. And that's what we're going to look at in, in verses 13 to 15. The hope of the gospel, it's under attack. We must be on guard. We must guard our hearts in the truth. Why? Because there is a discrepancy of message that we may not even fully realize. But how can we realize that message? By seeing that that message is leading us to diminish Christ. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So verse 12, the end of verse 12, there are some that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And then Paul says in verse 13, man, if this is true, then that means that not even Christ is raised. The validity of Christ's resurrection has already been set. In fact, uh, verses 3 to 11, we see Paul is really emphasizing the reality of Christ's resurrection. We, remember we talked that 
internal reality and the external reality. And then we even see in, in verses 5 to 11, all of the people that, that the resurrected Christ appeared to. And again, that this truth of the resurrection in its fullness, both Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the saints is being undermined in a cunning way. In the book of 2 Corinthians, which is a later letter that Paul writes to this very same church, he says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we, you, uh, if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Ouch. This shows us our heart's tendency to put up with untruth. Satan's tactics have not changed. Uh, Paul goes all the way back to the garden here. And he talks about the serpent deceiving Eve by his cunning. And that the danger is that our thoughts too will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's what's happening here in chapter 15. Again, the cunningness of this false teaching, it's not specifically dealing with Christ. But Paul says, oh yes it is. You know, sometimes people can say, you know what, I'm dealing with this in my life, I'm dealing with that in my life, I'm dealing with, with, with being upset about this, I'm dealing with being upset about that. And we think... That somehow that is unattached to the reality of Christ. But folks, if we are truly gospel-centered, gospel-living people, the gospel is like the center of the, of the bike wheel. All things find their roots back into what we are believing about Christ, and back into what we are trusting about him. When we allow our thoughts to be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ, it's just like what happened to Eve. She wanted to become her own God. She thought that somehow God was, was holding back on her. And she listened to the lie of the devil that if you just take matters into your own hands, if you just kind of see that you have a better way, all will be right. And that is the temptation we have. If the Corinthians were to continue to believe this message, they would no longer be holding to the purity of the gospel message, and it, they would now be holding on to a message that they were the author of. 
And if we, if we seek to, to apply and to believe that the gospel holds true in our lives, no matter what circumstances we are, are facing, no matter what issues we are dealing with, no matter what relational difficulties, whatever it is, if we start to believe that the gospel no longer impacts those, we now start to, be, to hold to a gospel that we are the author of and not what Christ says is true. You see, the gospel is what is at stake. As we think about this, I want to ask a few questions. These questions basically are general to more specific, and and I just pray that the Holy Spirit would, would lead in your hearts, would lead in my heart as we think about these, because there's no way to address every single issue under the sun. But I want to give you three questions as we start to think about how, whether it's internal, the voices in our head, our perceptions of right and wrong with whatever issue it may be, our own feelings. I mean, even our consciences, Scripture says, can go against Scripture. Our consciences need to be grounded in in the Scripture and taught by the scripture. So whether it's those internal things that, that are through the back door getting our gaze off of Christ, or whether it's something external, a situation, a circumstance, a trial, a relationship, on and on it could go. These are some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Number one, how is the truth of the gospel being undermined in a cunning way in my life. Or as a group, we say, in your life. How exactly is it? We, we need to first identify it. And again, because it's cunning, that may be difficult. Maybe we sometimes even need others to speak into our life to show us where our focus has gotten off because sometimes the worst people to self-diagnose is self. That's why I, I always have a temptation when I'm not feeling well or something's going on to go on to Google. But man, I've found that that produces more anxiety and problems than it's worth. So I have to like force myself, don't look that up. <laughs> See if it goes away. And if not, maybe we need to go to the doctor. But how is the truth of the gospel being undermined in a cunning way in your life? You know, it could even be through seeming good things. Did you know you can claim to be standing for truth? Because we all have impure hearts, we we struggle with sin. Did you know that we can start to even veer off in that and and Satan can use that to his advantage? Even good things can become bad things. Second question, maybe a little bit more detailed, to help us even in answering the first question. What patterns, and that that word is key, patterns. What patterns of thoughts 
or actions tend to belittle Christ and his sufficiency in your life. Patterns of thoughts or actions, they keep reoccurring. It keeps coming up. This isn't just a one or two-time thing. But there's a whole pattern, a whole way of life that Christ is belittled in your life and self is exalted. You can say, well, Pastor Adam, how do I even know when Christ is belittled in my life and self is exalted? I would say at the, at, at the, at the end of your situation or whatever the pattern of thought or action is, who are you left thinking more of? What I found in my life is when Christ is really at the center of my thoughts and actions, there's a, there's a peace. There, there's a joy. There's a love for others that, that, that naturally comes about. And when my life is caught up with self or, or, or my perception, uh, my, my opinions, or whatever it is, Man, I'm agitated. I'm I'm filled with anxiety. Stress. That's a really good indicator of is Christ or self being exalted? Then a third question. What beliefs are you holding to that taken to its logical conclusion will derail your faith in Christ? This question is an exact application to what we're dealing with with, uh, in, in Corinth. Paul basically says, I know you're not saying Christ didn't ra- wasn't raised from the dead, but you're saying there's no bodily resurrection of, the, of believers And if you hold to that, then that means that Christ was not raised from the dead. Do you really want to hold to that? So we need to ask ourselves, what are beliefs that we are holding to that taken to its logical conclusion will derail our faith in Christ? Maybe it's the belief that uh, that, that's exercised, that's indicated through patterns of thought and action. Maybe it's the belief that I am enough. And like the Galatian church, it's not that you're totally denying Jesus. You're just wanting to go back to the works of the law and say law plus Jesus. Kind of the attitude, I am enough. I just need a pinch of Jesus. You know, kind of like the song, uh, Jesus take the wheel. I-, I typed in the GPS direction. Now you just take the wheel. That belief taken to its logical conclusion will derail your faith in Christ because now your eyes, your faith is no longer on Jesus and him as sufficient itself. How about the belief that others are enough? That we run to others. As our Savior, it's not that others are bad and we need others in our life 
the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But when we, we, when we begin to exalt others at the expense of Jesus, taken to its logical conclusion, that will derail our faith. What about the belief that things are enough? I mean, man, when we're having a bad day, what's the first thought we, we go to? And what is it? You have to answer that for yourself. Is it to go online, to shop, or to go online to look at images you know you shouldn't? Or is it to, to drown yourself out with, with something else? That is placing your hope, that is placing your confidence in things as being enough. And that will derail your faith. What about the belief that my feelings, my perceptions are enough? If I think it's right, then that's enough. If I have this opinion, then that's enough. We can have feelings and perceptions in so many ways. One day I may feel sufficient, other days I may not. One day I may feel right with God, other days I may not. One day I can feel forgiven, other days I may not. One day I can feel in control of my life, the next day I may not. That's what James talks about, the, the, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You see, folks, when we really start to think about it, all of these things that we are bombarded with, and I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, whether it's our internal battle or the external battle, all of these things are like torpedoes coming at us or coming from within us that are seeking to belittle Christ in our lives. So when we look at this, we are not that far off from the Corinthian church in chapter 15, are we? So what must we do? We must once again run to Jesus. Just like whether you were, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to him, whether it was as a little, a little boy, a little girl, or whether it was was two weeks ago, every day continually running to Jesus in repentance and faith. Not to get saved again, but to realize where your salvation comes from. Because that same spirit of independence flares up in us all the time. That same confession of faith that Jesus, you are my Savior, no one else, including myself, has to be declared and believed time and time again. We're going to stop there this morning. And I just want you to consider, am I living with an awareness that the gospel is under attack in my life. 
I am in a war today. Many times we find peace or lack of peace based on what we read about in the news and and all these impending dangers and wars and all of those things. Listen, the greatest danger, as Jesus said, is not that which kills the body, but that which kills the soul. And we are in war today. As individuals and as a church, the gospel is under attack. Will we cling to what truly matters? 